Acts chapter 5 presents a very sobering account in the early church. And um, those of you who are familiar with it are perhaps wondering why we would end this particular session uh, on such a note. But we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5 and the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Are there superstars in the church of Jesus Christ? We all think, no, of course not. Everybody's the same at the foot of the cross. Except there are. There are even in our own minds. If you would just stop a moment and think of the church today, not, not necessarily our church, but the church at large, you would come up with some names of people who you think are pretty high up there, pretty, pretty close to God. You might even think that they are superstars. There have always been, because of the way we perceive life through our fallen eyes, there have always been, in any gathering, superstars. And in the church, that has been the case throughout its history. And there are really two types of superstars in the church. There are those who seek the praise of men. These are the ones who offer up long prayers and make a show of their charity. Jesus spoke of these, that men might see their good deeds and, and honor them, whose names adorn the pews and the libraries and the buildings of cathedrals and of churches. These are the superstars of whom the word says they have received their reward in full. But then there are those who have been granted a greater grace. Paul teaches us that we're not all gifted to the same measure and in the same way. Paul teaches us in his letters that there are those among us who are novices and those who are mature in the faith. And there are those who have been given greater grace, who, as Paul says, have worked harder, yet not them, but the grace of God within them. He says this of himself. 
These are those who imitated Paul as he imitated Christ and who ought to be imitated. But they are distinctly not those who draw such attention to themselves, but rather that God draws attention to them and actually tells us that we should mark out such men and women, not because they seek it, but because the grace that God has given them draws our attention to them. Now what we feel may be envy. It may be jealousy. It may be bitterness. Or it may be a challenge, a desire to grow in our own faith, that we might become more like them through the grace of God. So just as there is a legitimate and an illegitimate superstar within the church, there is a legitimate and an illegitimate response to that. Those who respond with envy, those who respond with jealousy, desire to be like the one whom they envy, but they want to shortcut the method. They want to get there by their, their own path. And this is what we have before us at the very beginnings of what we call the church. We have two superstars, as it were. One by the name of Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement. So it's very hard to think of him as a self-seeking uh, grandstander, isn't it? He was one who encouraged others. The word there is the same word used of the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. He was one who came alongside others and strengthened them. And yet, the grace that God had given him has stirred up envy and jealousy in the heart of another who wanted the same recognition, who wanted to be a superstar. And he thought, you know what, I can do the same thing because I have property as well. And I will sell that property and I will give it to the church, but you know what, that's a lot of money. And you know, we could do a lot, Sapphira, with some of that money, and no one would know. Because as we're going to talk about briefly, oftentimes this property was, was not nearby. And there was no Greenville County property records, so that you could look it up and find out exactly the sale price. Oftentimes this property was thousands of miles away, as these were Jews who were in Jerusalem from the diaspora. And so he could sell this property. And what he was doing here, Ananias, was very similar to what Jesus condemned the Pharisees when they would declare their property be, to be korban. In other words, devoted to the Lord. And when their family, when their parents, when their people that they were to take care of had need of them, they would say, no, I can't give you anything because that's all devoted to the Lord. But under the laws, they were still allowed to use it. That's what Ananias wants. You know, he wants his praise, his cake, and he wants to eat it too. And so we have a, a comparison between two superstars. One legitimate, one that God puts before us as someone that we should desire legitimately to emulate. Someone who encourages others. Someone who does give sacrificially. And then we have someone else who also represents a pattern within all religion, but especially Christianity, and that is the desire to attain to a level by illegitimate means, and really to fool God and man. 
Why do we have this story so early? Acts chapter 5, I mean, we barely got off the ground here. And this is not a very complimentary story for the church, is it? You know, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and, and great numbers are coming to the faith through baptism and things are going really well. And then we get this story, which is rather sordid and somewhat frightening. Well, one thing it teaches us is that biblical revelation is true to reality. It is not propaganda. Uh, there are many things that we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament that would not have been recorded. Things about Moses, things about David, that would not have been recorded if the Bible were simply attempting to propagandize a certain religion. You, you don't find things like this in other religious books. Everything is good, everything is great, especially with regard to the leader of that sect. But here we have the early church and we look into it and we see not only wheat, but we see tares. We see not only faith, but we see hypocrisy. And so rather than letting us settle in to this idea that within the walls of the church everything would be pure and righteous, the Holy Spirit preserves for us a very early incidence of what the church is going to experience throughout its years. And that is a mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness, of pure worship and of hypocrisy. The event will not always turn out the same. Thankfully, our graveyards would be very full if it did. And there is also a reason why this story is recorded for us here at the very beginning. But first of all, it is clearly a contrast between these two men, Barnabas and Ananias. The phrase that is used in verse 2, where Ananias laid the funds at the apostles' feet, is exactly the same phrase as in verse 37 of chapter 4, where Barnabas, who had owned a piece of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so our minds, remember the chapter divisions are not original, they were added later. Luke is drawing us to a comparison between these two men who were of very similar circumstances. They owned land. Now the question was asked this morning, before the service, and, and it's a question that is often asked in the commentaries, how is it that Barnabas, being a Levite, owned property? Well, the best answer that I've heard, now, there's no way that we can know, but Barnabas was not from Judea. He was not from Palestine, he was from Cyprus. He was a Cyprian. And the basic law that governed the ownership of property by Levites was that they did not have an inheritance within Israel. And so they were prohibited from owning property within Israel. But there was no law against them owning property in the dispersion. And so Jews have owned properties. Levites owned property. And property at that time was usually land because that was the primary source of wealth in a world that was tied so tightly to an agrarian economy. Property was wealth. And so Barnabas's land was probably in Cyprus. We don't know where Ananias' land was, but again, it's highly likely that it was someplace else, someplace other than Palestine. So very similar circumstances. They both owned a piece of property. Very similar actions. They sold the property and brought the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to those who had need. But very different hearts. 
One heart filled with encouragement. One filled with Satan. And when you read something like that in the scriptures, depending on your background in Christianity, depending on perhaps your personality, one of the first questions people ask is, was Ananias a believer? Was Sapphira truly a Christian? I don't think there's any definitive answer to that, but we will touch upon that as we look at this. But hopefully, the very notion of a heart filled with Satan would teach us the sobriety of what we are reading. It's like when Paul, in recommending discipline, actually twice he does this, he hands someone over to Satan for the disciplining of the flesh, or the destruction of the flesh. When you read something like that, you should, you should stop and think, wow, wow, that's, that's something else. We need to think about that. What's going on here is such, of such a nature. We tend to think that, it was, that, that the, the reason that it was such a big deal was, I mean, he died, so obviously it was a big deal. But the big deal was that Satan had come into Ananias and Sapphira's heart and had tempted them successfully to perpetrate a lie, not only to the church, but more even to God. When this passage is taught and written upon and preached in the history of the church, sadly, the financial aspect of it dominates. And this passage has been used uh, many, many times, I think very illegitimately, to browbeat the church into giving money to the church. This was popular in the patristic age, in the medieval age, in the Reformation, and even in the modern age, where people or preachers will take this passage and they will say that the sin of Ananias was that he did not give all of the money to the church. This passage has also been used to justify people writing the church into their wills. And that nobody should have extra property, but they should sell it and bring the money to the church. That's not what this passage means at all. This is not an economic passage at all. It's not about giving all of your wealth to the church. Listen to what Peter says. He says, while it remained unsold, was it not under your control? And when you had sold it, were the proceeds not under your control? What would have been the case had Ananias come to Peter and said, hey, we, we sold this, this property and, and we, we made 100,000 shekels and, and I'm going to give 50,000 she, 50, shekels to the church for the ministry of the poor. Would there have been a story to tell? Would Peter have said, why has Satan filled your heart not to give all 100? No, he wouldn't have said that. Because that is not what giving is all about. But we make, we make rules and we, make, and we lay burdens upon the shoulders of believers that are just as heavy as those the Pharisees laid on the shoulders of, believe, of Jews. The big debate, it's not so big anymore because I think nobody cares. But when I was a young Christian, the big debate was the tithe. You don't really hear much about that anymore. It's not that the church now tithes. That's not the case. I think still, based on the statistics that somebody looks at, 
the average giving is somewhere around 2.8 percent. You know, a tithe is 10 percent. But the debate is, you know, are, are we still under law and therefore we must give a tenth? Or are we under grace and therefore we can give nothing? Or, or if we tithe, should we tithe on our gross or should we tithe on the net? And I remember all of these debates and these books being written about tithing. Do we have a biblical basis for demanding 10%? Well, if you look at the Old Testament where the 10% comes from, and, and you tally up all of the offerings that were given by the Israelite to the temple, you're going to be a lot higher than 10%. Your, your tax bracket is going to be up pretty high. The 10% was one particular tax. But what about Christians? What about the church? Well, I think God has not left us without instruction concerning our hearts and giving. I think He has left us without instruction concerning our pronouncements, our edicts, and what the church leadership tells the people of the church they must do. He's left us without any such instruction. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, Paul writes, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. Ananias, do what you have purposed in your heart, but don't lie about it. Let each one do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That is Christian economics. That is giving in the church. That is the heart that was in Barnabas, but not in Ananias. So what was Ananias and Sapphira's sin? Well, hypocrisy, certainly a major part of it, but I think it was deeper than that. Hypocrisy was the symptom of the disease that was within. They pretended to do something that they were not really doing. They pretended to be someone that they really weren't. They tr tried to be Barnabas, but they weren't quite there. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, that puts, that puts a highlight on what the sin was. It was a, a lie. It was a deception to the Holy Spirit of God. But Ananias cannot blame Satan. And this is where it gets kind of tricky when we try to make application and we ask questions like, was Ananias a believer? And can Christians be possessed? And... You know, you've heard them. You maybe even thought them. Can Satan fill a Christian's heart? Well, again, I cannot answer that definitively from this past passage, but I think it is significant that Peter treats Ananias as if he were a believer. He asks the question, why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Later on, he will ask Sapphira, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? There is a temptation here. One author says, But while the sin of Ananias is referred to this satanic influence, 
The question why represents it as a voluntary act. Is a Christian able to resist the devil? Is an unbeliever? Well, I can't answer for the unbeliever, except to say that his resistance to the devil is going to be much weaker than that of the Christian. I can answer on behalf of the Christian because James tells us that we are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. So I'm going to conclude that Peter viewed Ananias and Sapphira as believers, as brethren. Otherwise, his question would have been of no account. But rather, he says, Ananias, you did not need to let this happen. Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you conspired to lie to the Spirit of the Lord? The temptation was there, but so was the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to resist it. Now that may make you nervous. It may make you realize that we too as believers can be misled and deceived and that we can do something with our heart filled with envy, with hypocrisy, with immorality and impurity. In other words, we can have our hearts filled with Satan and do something that is ungodly, that is irreverent in the deepest sense. But what did Jesus say to Peter? When Peter wanted to interfere and to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem, Jesus turned and said, get behind me, Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is a created being, though he may be the most powerful of the angelic host, though I don't know that that's the case. He is certainly more powerful than I am alone. It is not possible for Satan, who is a distinct individual, to fill so many hearts. It is not possible for him to personally possess. And we read in Scripture of those who were demon-possessed, and they were legion, and, and they were others who had names. They were not Satan. What we're talking about here is the principle that Satan represents and what he perpetrates throughout the world. Paul calls it the lie in Romans chapter 1. That they believe the lie. And that is what Satan foments and, and propagates, is the lie. It takes many different forms. And when anybody takes the lie into their heart, it is, as it were, that their heart is filled with Satan. We have the ability through the Word of God, and by the grace of the, un, the indwelling Spirit of God, to resist the lie by knowing the truth. That's what protects us. We know the truth. And what was the truth that Ananias knew but failed to accept? Well, it wasn't about giving, nor was it even about hypocrisy. It was about the God with whom he had to do. The God that he was ostensibly worshiping with this gift of money the proceeds of this sale. He came to this God believing a lie about him. 
Now the significance of this story, I believe, ties in as we close this particular session in the book of Acts with the way we began it. And that is that we are actually witnessing here the culmination of the exodus of Israel. We're witnessing the true return from exile of the Jewish nation, the remnant of the Jewish nation. The true temple is now being built out of living stones with Jesus Christ, as Peter has just reminded the people, the cornerstone. And so the, 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 the overtones of the exodus of the temple, the tabernacle, are very powerful in what's going on here. And the transition from the books of Moses into the book of Joshua is very much parallel to the books of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And so when we look at this, we're reminded of two other people who came before God with a false notion of who he was. And they died. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are a direct parallel to Ananias and Sapphira. And Nadab and Abihu's death before God is the background to the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Now great fear came upon the people, and it is quite understandable. For any of us who know our heart, our own heart, if we knew that the least hypocrisy, the least impurity, the least attempt on our part to deceive God would be met with instant death? That's scary, isn't it? Again, it'd be a lot of bodies lying around the church because our hearts are not fully pure. You know, we look at Ananias and hopefully we think, you know, there but by the grace of God go I. Money has that kind of enticement to it. And we could do the same thing Ananias and Sapphira did. But as we go through the book of Acts, we will read that impurity and hypocrisy will continue to be within the church. And yet those people will not drop down dead. This was, in a sense, an exclamation point to draw the minds of these early Jewish Christians to when God first poured out His Spirit on the tabernacle, giving His approbation to the worship of Himself through the law, through the Levitical priesthood, through the Aaronic priesthood. But then there were two sons of Aaron who themselves were priests. But they brought before God strange fire. And they were struck dead on the spot. Ananias and Sapphira worshipped a God who they thought could not see. Ananias and Sapphira worshipped a God who they thought would be pleased with a lie. They came before a God that they knew to be the God of Jesus Christ. I will grant that. But they came to a God, as sometimes we do, oh, he doesn't see, as the psalmist says, the wicked say. He doesn't see our iniquity. He doesn't see into our heart. This is very, very prevalent in the modern church. Grace and the love of God are undoubtedly poured out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at what He has done. He has made atonement for our sins. He has borne our iniquity to the cross. 
and, and look at what we no longer have to do. All of the rituals, all of the sacrifices that the Jews did, we don't have to do them because they have been done in Jesus Christ. He has poured out grace and mercy and there is therefore now no condemnation. But in all of this, has God himself changed? Sometimes when you listen to the gospel as it is preached in the modern church, you think and you even hear that God has lowered the bar. You know, that he had the bar up so high for Israel that they couldn't get over it. So, so for us pagans, for us stupid Gentiles, he's lowered the bar and all we have to do is believe. And there are those who teach that after you believe, it doesn't really matter how you live. Once saved, always saved. You're in. Don't worry about it. Now, it'd be nice if you want to have a special mansion, you know, and nice decorations in your mansion and rewards in heaven. It would be a good idea if you try to obey the Lord. You know, that's good, but it's not necessary. Now, that's a prevalent teaching. That's a strange fire. Because though God has fulfilled all that He promised He would do, the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah has come. And he has brought deliverance, not only for his people Israel, but through Israel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Though he has done what he said he would do, he has not changed. His eyes are still too pure to look upon evil. And the words that came to Aaron after the death of his sons still apply to every one of us as we come before the Lord, by those who come before me, I will be holy. And before all people, I will be honored. That is what God is saying to the church in Acts chapter 5. And from Acts chapter 5, through the rest of the history of the church, by those who come before me, I will not be treated lightly. You will not call me daddy. You will not treat me with irreverence or pretend that I do not see your hearts. You will not try to hide your hearts from me, but rather you will reveal them because all things lay open and bare with him whom we have to do. The message remains. It's vividly illustrated this one time and we can be thankful to God that it doesn't continue. But when we come before God with our offerings, whether they be financial, whether they be our offerings in song, our offerings in prayer, whatever we do before the Lord, understand the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira, the lesson of Nadab and Abihu. We come before a holy God. The death of Ananias was, not, was a signal proof that though hypocrisy and impurity cannot be kept out of the church, the law of holiness remains inexorable. There can be no compromise with God's righteousness. Let us pray. Father, we are sobered by this story, this history of Ananias and Sapphira. And I pray that by your Spirit we would understand that though you have done incredibly merciful and gracious things on our behalf, you have shown yourself to be a loving God, full of mercy and grace and compassion, yet you have not ceased to be a holy God. 
And you still dwell in unapproachable light. I pray, Father, that we would not grow familiar. That now that the veil has been torn and we have access boldly before your throne, that this would not lower in our eyes your majesty and your holiness, but rather we would come before you with humility in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ, asking you to take our holy things and to sprinkle them with the blood of Christ that they might be acceptable in your sight. And that you would keep impurity and hypocrisy far from us, but constantly remind us to confess our sins, leaning upon our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, knowing that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you will one day present us before yourself spotless and without blemish in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we do ask that you would make us holy and that you would humble us by the knowledge of your holiness. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this morning from Hebrews chapter... 13, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.